Today on Sharp Scratch, you'll learn the difference between EBM and EDM. Why it should be your best buddy. And why an annual health check might not actually be that healthy. You're listening to Sharp Scratch, episode 29. Sharp Scratch, talking evidence. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we talk about all the things you might want to know to be a good doctor, but that you might not get taught at med school. I'm Anna, and I'm a final year medical student at King's, and also the editorial scholar here at the BMJ. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today um, by my old friend Oki and my new friend Izzy. Hey guys, would you like to introduce yourselves? I'm Izzy, I'm a third year medical student at Nottingham. And Izzy is one of our new contributors. Um, we're very excited to have you here today, Izzy. And Maybe. I am Oki. I'm a third, soon to be fourth year at Dundee University. Very exciting. So thank you guys so much for joining me once again. We are not uh, in the studio. We are in our own homes, which I still think is really weird. But um, what can you do, eh? And I'm also really, really happy to welcome to Sharp Scratch someone who's been really important in my editorial training at the BMJ this year. Um, so it's Dr. Helen McDonald. She's the UK research editor at the BMJ and she is also in charge of me. She is my manager, so I'm <laughs> very keen to impress her with this recording today. <laughs> so Helen, would you like to introduce yourself? Nothing makes you relax like having your boss <laughs> breathing down your <laughs> on a podcast. But this is your chance to get revenge, really, because you can ask me anything you want. <laughs> uh, no, I think you've introduced me very well, I guess. Um, how am I the UK research editor? I suppose um, I was a medical student once in London. Um, I trained as a junior doctor um, and then as a GP. Um, but through all of my GP training, I worked part time in clinical medicine and part-time at the BMJ um, and for the last ooh, three years I haven't done any clinical medicine. Where did you train in London? What uni did you go mm-hmm. to? Uh, I went to Bart's in the London. <laughs> that, like instant med school. Bart's. <laughs> oh nothing. What does that mean? Just, just, just nothing. <laughs> I think it meant we were very good at communication skills, but we didn't know much anatomy. I think that was a stereotype. In, I think it in, still in is. <laughs> I don't know if that's changed. <laughs> so here you find me on a talking show. We're going to be talking about evidence-based medicine today. And I know that it's kind of one of your interests. I don't know if you would describe it as a passion. Um, but yeah, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about um, your interest in evidence-based medicine and also the other podcast that you do. Yes, sure. As with me, I'm not really one of life's planners. I did not plan to become interested in evidence-based medicine. It was it was sort of an organic process. And I guess it began when I came to the BMJ. I was quite junior. I'd just finished my foundation programme. So I thought I knew a small amount about clinical medicine. Not very much, but a small amount. And um, I'd also done a journalism degree. So I thought I should be all right at this job. And when I arrived, I realised that there was this whole zone of information that I was looking at that I just really didn't understand. I think I must have done a couple of weeks of some kind of, I don't know if it was even called evidence-based medicine, but some kind of methodology training at medical school. 
Um, and then I don't remember it much featuring in my thought processes um, at all. I think I probably thought when I was at medical school that doing evidence-based medicine meant reading research papers and going to a journal club and maybe doing what it said in guidelines. I think that's probably what I would have said. And I realised that it was totally different to that. Um, and and I think my my interest hasn't necessarily grown because I was primarily interested in the methodology and that kind of thing. It's just I'm interested in the science and how it affects people. And I think to understand that, um, you have to be interested in evidence-based medicine. And now I do this podcast. It's called Talk Evidence. You can listen to that one. Uh, it's probably not as good as this one, but um, you're very welcome to, where I talk to a very grumpy man called <laughs> Carl, <laughs> currently every week about evidence on COVID. I've actually seen, read, <laughs> listen to this, actually. <laughs> I think I have, have you? as well. I think oh I my have. god, I mean, everything I, I slotted so. into place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're that hell in the That's me. Yeah, yeah. Did no, I sound different? No, but like, like no. I don't know, you know when, when things just don't <laughs> click in your head? And if that interests you, you might be interested in some of the other things we've been talking about recently. So evidence around going into lockdown and lifting from lockdown, how to approach evaluation of covid interventions so we've talked a bit about some of the drugs that are being uh, proposed as potentially helpful for covid and some of the physical interventions such as masks and um, we've talked a bit about waste in covid research uh, we've talked about how ethics should play into research particularly when um, evidence is very very unclear and how to understand the natural history of covid and how big data can help us too you said that a lot of the talk evidence recently has been about COVID, which obviously it's it's a huge, huge thing that's, you know, affected every aspect of people's lives. And I didn't want to make this whole podcast about COVID, but I think that one of the themes that's come out of, you know, what's been happening for me has been the importance of clinicians having good evidence to base their practice on. Um, and I think obviously that's always been the case, but it's just really highlighted, I think, because of the lack of evidence around COVID, um, it's really sort of brought it to the forefront of people's minds. Um, and I guess like what you were saying before I came to the BMJ, I definitely didn't have like a really good grasp of what evidence-based medicine actually is. Um, I don't know about you guys, Izzy and Oki, do you, I mean, you've both listened to talk evidence, so you probably got a better idea than I do. <laughs> I'd say for me, I've just completed a BMED Sci, so I've just recently got you know, introduce the world of research and all that sort of business. Um, and I think, you know, when you're doing that, you're researching all these papers and you're like, oh, yeah, I see where they've got that from. I've got, I see where they've got that conclusion. And sometimes you, you, you see that, um, I'd say you see something and you think, oh, uh, that's where that's from. And it makes a little bit more sense in that way. Um, but still some of the stuff that you see, you think, why are you researching that? Why? What is the point? And then suddenly it all clicks into place. And I, that's what I like about it. It clicks into place slowly. And I think it's nice seeing how when you enter those different worlds, and I used to think of my job when I had two of them, when I was a proper portfolio doctor, um, I had this like little bubble that existed over at BMJ and this little bubble that existed in clinical. And you can start to make 
connections between those worlds and I think that's what's so nice about evidence-based medicine it is trying to mix those bubbles together so you're trying to mix your clinical expertise with the best available evidence in that circumstance even if in situations like COVID that's profoundly uncertain Mm -hmm. with an individual person in front of you a patient and what's important to them. So, Helen, would you mind just kind of telling us what actually is evidence-based medicine, like, at its most basic? Sure. So I guess underneath it, um, you have evidence or science, and that provides you with some information. Evidence-based medicine is about taking that science, um, or the best evidence, and integrating it with two other ingredients, with clinical expertise and with what's important to a patient in front of you, what their values and preferences and priorities are. So it's applying the science to the situation that you're in. So I guess for the benefit of myself, Oki and Izzy, um, why should we care about it? Well, I guess if you think if you didn't do evidence-based medicine, what are you doing? You're either Mm. someone that falls into the category of saying, here's some evidence and this tells us what we should do. Or you're in the category of saying, I know best. I've seen this before and I know what to do. And I'm going to make all kinds of judgments about your situation and just tell you what to do. And to to me, neither of those things sit comfortably. I'm not someone that likes to control other people or to to tell them what choices they should make. So I see evidence-based medicine as being about encouraging people's autonomy to make the right decisions for themselves and me be that as a in a clinical role or in an information providing role trying to find and present the information in the most straightforward understandable and neutral way that I can so that the reader or the patient can make the best decision that they can in their circumstances and I guess with as you practice it those circles for any decision or for any conversation that you're having one of those circles might be more important at any one time so sometimes I think evidence is very clear Um, there are very sort of strong signals about perhaps what you should in inverted commas do and most patients would want to follow that so you might end up having a conversation that's very much about um you know we we recommend this as a way forward because we think most people would would choose it does it fit with you whereas there I think there are other conversations where things are very uncertain or perhaps the the alternatives um incorporate lots of other things like inconvenience in your life or changes to to the way you live and then your patient values are going to be arguably far more important than a little bit of uncertain evidence over here. And I wonder if that helps build the doctor-patient rapport a little bit, such as if you say to a patient, I'm going to give you this medication or this treatment, evidence shows it works or evidence shows that it might be more beneficial than treatment Y, for instance. I wonder if that would help um, the patient almost build confidence and trust in you, which, again, you know, if you've got a patient that's um that's you know taking complying to all your treatments often the outcomes a lot better and the prognosis is a lot better 
than if the patient doesn't trust you as much because they're less likely to, you know, adhere to the medication regime, possibly. Yeah, I mean, I think if it is about honesty, isn't it, and building trust and sharing information with patients. And I think part of the information that you need to be able to share as a, if you want to be an evidence-based healthcare professional, is sharing with them the E part. Um, but I think that's often very hard um, because it's not well presented. Sometimes it's not easy to find evidence. Um, when you do find it, if it's something like it's buried in a research paper, it can be extremely difficult to try and communicate that yeah. to somebody or say what it means for them or take it out of sort of bizarre numbers like relative risks and hazard ratios and odds ratios and actually try and turn that into a sentence that you might be able to say to somebody like if you took this treatment about five years from now we would expect that I don't know x and 100 people would have this outcome and if you didn't or you did this other thing then it would be this number instead Um, I think there's such poor information out there and as that gets translated into guidance which in a way is is one filtering system for taking that evidence and making it clear for practitioners they often remove all of that information and and just give you a sentence like Mm. we we recommend with perhaps some strength of the recommendation a particular course of action but it's quite unusual that um guidance shares that uncertainty with you and also shares um any kind of um easy to understand numbers to share with patients and they don't necessarily matter to all patients but but I think they do to others and I think it matters as you're having a conversation with someone how how persuasive Mm. those numbers are so yeah I wanted to talk about like why evidence-based medicine is important because I think you know as we said earlier it's quite easy to think of it as it like this abstract concept that doesn't really intersect with what you're doing talking to a patient and I think as or at least my experience of being a medical student is there's such a large volume of things and like I you know learn reams of nice guidelines and things and you don't really have that opportunity to stop and kind of breathe and think okay actually how have they got this information like and how do I know if this information how do I communicate this information to someone other than just saying it's what the guidance says and um, yeah, I totally agree because one of my areas of clinical interest is, um, you know, obstetrics and gynecology and the problems in that field of like risk communication um, around birth choices and things like that. I've read a lot about that. And it yeah, I guess it didn't really occur to me that that was like intersex with evidence based medicine, but clearly it does like so, so much and communicating that to patients, like even really experienced clinicians find that really hard. So I wonder if those concepts need to be presented to people a bit earlier sort of in their careers and stuff and I think those concepts are still developing because um, I think the focus on shared decision making and really clear expression of information to patients is is a growing field and still quite underdeveloped I think everyone's everyone's learning how to do it one project that I've been involved in at BMJ has been setting up rapid recommendations which has been the idea that when we see a new trial um, typically a new trial come out that might um, alter practice that we trigger a process that means 
there is a systematic review, so a gathering of all of the evidence relevant to that question and summary of, of what it means. And parallel to that, there is a guidance process which takes that evidence and discusses it with the relevant people. So that includes patients and clinicians and epidemiologists, methodologists, and processes that not only into a recommendation, but into a picture, which we have as a, as a BMJ infographic, um, which you can click on and sort of play with to show you why the panel made that recommendation. And it gives you the numerical display of that information in, in absolute terms, so usually per 100 or per 1,000 people. But it also shows you the other elements that you might need to have a conversation with a patient. So are there any particular practical issues around this treatment? Which people do we think this is more or less appropriate for? What are the major areas of uncertainty? What do we know about the values and preferences of patients typically mm. in this position? Not because they will necessarily apply to your patient, but it can be just quite a good starting point, can't it, to sort of be able to say you know a lot might be going through your mind at the moment we know that some patients in your position worry about this particular thing and weighing up things like what's most important to you at this point in your life is it survival is it your quality of life all all those types of things Helen I guess one of the things that I have always found a bit confusing about evidence-based medicine is there's sometimes where it's like seems a bit counterintuitive so for instance, like I've read a bit about, um, you know, whether actually screening works. So particularly around things like mammograms, like are we actually doing more harm than good with those and, you know, annual health checks and things like that. So I wondered if you could just maybe tell us a little bit about how that kind of all factors into evidence-based practice. Sure, there are things that are, that are quite counterintuitive. And I guess we have to be alert to that. And that's why before we do something, before we act or implement a particular course of action, ideally we need evidence that shows that the balance of benefit and harm is worth it. We shouldn't rely on mechanistic thinking, for example, in screening. What kind of underlies that thinking is that if you catch something early, then you can make a difference in the outcome And that's a really noble hypothesis. But I guess what you have to do is to test that and to see if that's really actually true. So some of the classic debates around screening have been around, I guess, what researchers or evidency people would call lead time bias. Um, So the idea that if you make a diagnosis sooner, have you just lived with that condition for longer or have you actually extended somebody's life for example um Mm. and there are I find lead time bias a really hard concept um to get my head around when someone says it in words but you should google a picture of it because when you look at a picture of lead time bias it's very clear and you just go oh I think this is one of the things that learning more about evidence-based medicine has done for me is that I now like literally view everything that I do in terms of a risk-benefit ratio, which is probably not the most healthy way to live your life. <laughs> I think other other sort of important concepts to grasp is to try and think through things like um, the difference between relative numbers and absolute numbers. 
So things that might say, you know, if you have a doubling of your risk of an outcome, that sounds bad. And it's really easy to say that to a patient then and they would think, God, that sounds really bad. But if that doubling represents the difference between one in a million and two in a million, your sense of scale, there's a need to apply those relative numbers to some kind of absolute scale so that you can get things in perspective. So I think there are a few concepts mm-hmm. like that um, that are, are really well worth trying to get your head around. <laughs> it's very complicated. Somewhere. It is. And I think <laughs> I, I think this is one of the like really interesting things I find about it in terms of like conceptually rather than practically is sort of it I think people have this idea of science as being like this very black and white thing um and particularly in medicine that's just not true and I know that that's definitely something I when I went to med school I was like okay you know what's you know what's going to be a good treatment you give it to the patient they probably get better like that's how it works but that's totally not how it works (laughs) at all and and we haven't even touched on the sort of what you were saying earlier (laughs) Izzy about um you know if a patient has x level of confidence that that medication is going to help them you know does that actually play into how well it works one thing i've become more comfortable with since started medical school is being comfortable with being uncertain and not knowing things and just making the best decision you can make based on the information you have in front of you at that point in time and you you can't really know anything else apart from what you know that didn't make any sense, but it made sense. <laughs> no, it does make sense. No, it, it, it makes, makes sense. sense. And I think, like, you see it all the time, don't you? You know, someone looks back at what the the A and E doctor has done and goes, "God, why have they done that? Like, I don't understand why they've made that decision." You know, based on what you now know about the patient, like what two weeks later after they've been on the ward for ages, and then you sort of think, well, <laughs> they, you know, they only were working with the information that they had at the time. So they made like the best judgment based on that information. And I think that's true as evidence gets better about things. You might sort of look back on treatments. I mean, I did history of medicine um, as my interclade BSc. So I look back on treatments in the past and you think, why did they ever think that that was going to work? But yeah, with the benefit of hindsight and with more evidence, I suppose you just get a better idea of what you should be doing and I think that's what's been interesting about the COVID thing is that like we've had that but like a microcosm of that in like six months yeah it's been very very quick changing like I, I don't know about um other areas in the UK but up in Dundee like the guidance literally changes every day pretty much and mm. I, I know I know healthcare workers are encouraged to check the, I think they get a daily email with all the changes to their practice pretty much and it's quite difficult to keep up to date with it but um it's kind of like evolving based on what evidence that they have and i guess that kind of brings me on to what i wanted um helen you could help us with next which is what do you kind of see that the the key barriers are to sort of actually implementing evidence-based medicine because i i mean i think you're saying it's like a relatively new field which seems strange considering you would think that we would have wanted to as a profession do things with that had evidence behind them for you know forever um but i guess that's one of the one of the things that is a barrier is literally the volume of new information that's coming out but would you see there's any other kind of big areas that 
make it an issue to actually implement evidence-based practice yes I mean you're right it's it's relatively new I guess if you depends on your time scale but I think it emerged as a kind of concept in the 90s and everyone kind of ran with it and I think it's very appealing but like with any system it's imperfect and it's vulnerable to all kinds of um, influence I think some barriers are practical so sometimes they're isn't evidence to be at the base of things. Sometimes the evidence is hard to find. It can be hard to access. It can be hard to use. It can be too time consuming. There's a cultural shift required to move to that kind of model of sharing information and weighing up the benefit and harm of particular ways forward in any given situation. So there's some culture there. There's habit. I think it's hard when you've always managed something a particular way to undo that in the face of new evidence or challenging even whether the way you were doing it before had any evidence so a lot of the things that we do um, even examination techniques um, the evidence base for those and how they actually play into our clinical decision making rather than just form part of a routine that we're doing with someone is something that we should question as much as we question where the treatments work and then I think there's there's other bigger forces. There's there's political stuff that goes on, you know, things that are in favour and bigger political things, particularly around um, commercial interests. So I think commercial interest has kind of distorted evidence-based medicine in some ways and, and the production of evidence. And that's another thing the BMJ has been, been very keen to follow. Um, so we have quite strict policies around particularly educational material and commercial conflicts of interest that people have so if you've taken money for even very minor things like going to a conference that's that is paid for by the pharmaceutical industry we know that those ties financial ties distort things or or are linked to distortion of the evidence um another themes that i think have emerged are around over medicalization and that's another theme that the bmj has been following closely for for a long time so the idea that we culturally are driven to look for medical solutions to problems which are maybe part of normal life experiences and the concept of things like over diagnosis so labeling people with a condition um that actually would not have harmed them over their life course which is a really weird thing to try and um get your head around <laughs> so i think yeah there's there's a huge number of things that shape why Would it can you go wrong say, um this is kind of linked to realistic medicine as well then like based on on the stuff you were saying because like i feel like realistic medicine is like a a new thing that's kind of coming up like so trying to um stop over prescribing of medication like prescribing gardening instead or stuff like that so how would you say realistic medicine and yes I don't know a huge amount about the realistic medicine movement but I know there was um there was a big report wasn't there in Scotland not a huge number of years ago um, that was proposing this idea of realistic medicine and if do you know the key concepts and then you have to refresh my memory as to what, what 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 the key things are within it but but I do think that um perhaps addressing a cultural desire that we have to medicalize things and also being critical of things which don't work and removing them and just being honest that we did this thing once um once upon a time and it it turned out that it wasn't very helpful and now we should get rid of it and if Carl my co-host from Talk Evidence was here he would highlight routine health checks yeah and I think um the other kind of 
thing with that is like harm reduction as well so you know things like appreciating that because i've been reading some stuff about this in terms of covid like appreciating that people likely are not going to be able to maintain a level of lockdown for you know two years so actually should we be looking at um things to sort of reduce the risk or reduce the harm whilst understanding that like there's loads of other things that come into it including the way humans behave right which is not always predictable and I think we've all seen like any number of modeling studies and things like that and actually it can be quite difficult to predict how people are gonna react to things so I think that's quite an interesting element of it as well which I guess you know that that plays into one of those three key tenets of evidence-based medicine right it's patient patient values and um patient experiences and what's acceptable to to patients I think covid will be a really good example for medical students in general I think because it's new so you don't feel like you have to go way back in time like no one's really a covid expert at this moment in time so you have the opportunity to be that person and it shows all of the types of questions that you would want to answer if you want to practice in an evidence-based way so beginning with what is this virus how does it work understanding how common it is who is at risk? Can you predict the people who are at risk? Um, how, how do we diagnose this? What tests should we use? What treatments work? Can we prevent it? Um, you, you see the kind of full full spectrum of tests. And in watching sort of the news stories unravel and the press releases come out, you can start to pick out all of these themes that work as barriers to, to EBM. So some of the political things, you have people like Donald Trump advocating for hydroxychloroquine well, that's incredibly powerful advocacy from a really important figure in many people's lives and now you have scientists or proponents of evidence having to really fight back quite hard against um, hype or just enthusiasm about things that we don't know if it works so putting forward the idea if we don't know that it works if it's a question then that's something we should be investigating yeah. using a trial and, and things like that. So you see that, that kind of political interference. You also see difficulties with the information deluge. I mean, I'm sure the, the publications, sort of official publications are increasing all the time, but we've now got preprint servers where you can post your research or your work before it's been submitted to a journal and peer-reviewed. And there's a huge information deluge there. BMJ's preprint server is sort of considering hundreds and hundreds of submissions a week you start to see some of those um some of those difficulties cropping mm. up cool well we're gonna talk a little bit about how um as a med student or new doctor you might be able to develop your skills around evidence-based medicine but that would be right after this how much do you care about indemnity right now probably not a lot you're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients but being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor, plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. 
And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. Okay, so I think we've spoken um, a bit about the sort of key tenets of evidence-based medicine um, and some of the theory and the barriers to actually practicing it. But I know that um, I'm very aware that our last few podcasts have not been very practical and that's definitely to do with me and the fact that I'm sat here by myself in my house just thinking about things all the time. So, you know, we love some practical tips on Sharp Scratch. Helen, do you know any sort of key resources that students or new doctors who are interested in evidence-based medicine might kind of be able to get into? Is there any kind of key papers that are really like cornerstones um, of EBM? See, here you're relying on me being two things, (laughs) planner (laughs) and very organised, and I am neither of these things. My my journey into this has been very organic. What would I say? Um, I think there are obviously things like textbooks of evidence-based medicine, but they feel very, a little bit dry to me. I mean, there are some good... um, sort of initial papers on on evidence-based medicine I'm sure we can post uh, some of those in the in the podcast link just an introduction um some of the old papers from the 90s sort of introducing what what the concept is um and then I think in the journey of evidence-based medicine there have been various pauses to reflect on on how things are going and I think two things that stand out for me one um is some work done by an Australian guy, Paul Glasgow, who's also a GP and previously worked at the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford. He's now out in Bond. And he wrote a series in The Lancet about waste in research. I think that's really interesting um, around the questions that are asked, the way that things are funded, um, all kinds of things. I think that's definitely worth a look. Um, And there was also a very popular essay which which brings up um, many of the themes that we've been talking about about the sort of practical barriers to evidence-based medicine which was written by Trish Greenhouse in the BMJ uh, some years back so I think that's a little mini intro you can obviously listen to our wonderful <laughs> podcast every week um, <laughs> and uh, otherwise I would say I think the nice thing about evidence-based medicine is that it cuts across all the specialties so whatever your interest is at medical school it gives you the opportunity to find what evidence-based medicine means in that specialty. Where are the areas of uncertainty, of active research, of work that you can become involved in? And personally, I've always found that doing things and experiencing them in a practical way has been the most useful. So, so I would say take a look at what's going on at your university near where you are, what are the opportunities locally, and just start something and and see see where it takes you see what I say when I first got I say interest in even doing medicine that was because of the Wakefield report um so the Wakefield report which linked vaccines and higher incidence of autism um and then the Honda report a few years after which um showed contrary evidence to that and I think that's a good way to show how you know the effect of evidence-based medicine or lack of can have in society in the world and I think it shows even people say oh um, to be a doctor you just need to know about the clinical stuff you need to know about this but actually the massive impact that you know reports which maybe don't have the right evidence can have is just huge and 
other people might be able to relate to thalidomide and things like that which maybe didn't have the right evidence basis behind it and to avoid things like that happening again you know just the huge importance of this and mm. in, in real life to ultimately avoid mm. deaths and mm. and people often say oh I, as you are Helen you you're not a clinical doctor anymore you're working in evidence-based medicine in research and that's you know just as important I'd say as being a doctor than you know being on the so-called front line as they're all calling it these days. The other interesting question I think when you're when you're just talking to people about their work if you seek out some of these opportunities at your university and I always find this um podcasting people is to ask them why they're doing this like why did why did they start this project because some of those questions I think often are so revealing yeah about what's motivating them what they've seen often it's something that they've seen that's upset them or annoyed them it's something that's made them really passionate to want to spend a large chunk of their career several years of their life doing something cool so I think that's everything Thing that I kind of wanted to cover today. It's been a, a short and snappy one, as opposed to the um, recently we've spent a long time talking about uh, very nebulous concepts. So uh, it's been nice to get some practical uh, thoughts today, I think. And thank you so much, Helen, for being with us and uh, helping us along in our EBM journey. Yeah, insights into EBM have been really interesting. I mean, they've been interesting to me personally, having you know, come into this actually not really knowing that much about evidence-based medicine apart from what you and I have discussed before. Um, so, okay, you're an old hand at this now, but Izzy, it's your it's your first time doing a, a sharp scratch. What have been your main uh, takeaway points from today's episode? Izzy, did you have a main takeaway point? I think that it's okay to not be a clinical doctor, like a clinical practitioner that's perfectly fine and it's just as valuable I think is my takeaway point it's made me feel a little bit more comfortable about you know having my options open I'd say um I would say my main takeaway point is to be mindful of the three pillars or circles of evidence-based medicine which are clinical judgment scientific evidence and um putting the patient's values into all your into your practice that's my clever thing to say well, mine follows on from Oki's because you said you wanted this episode to be practical. So I think my advice would be next time you're sitting in an outpatient clinic or doing a ward round, which feels like it's going on way too long and you need some entertainment to keep yourself awake. I think you should write down those three pillars, evidence, clinical expertise and patients' values and preferences. And then the consultation that you're seeing unfold before you Think about what information is being exchanged that falls under those areas. And so think then about if you were back in that situation again, when you're the junior doctor, or when you're the consultant, to, or to what extent do you think you could balance up those pillars differently? And do you think there's any other information that you would have shared or other questions that you could have asked in order to practice in a more evidence-based way? I'm going to wow. do that. That's really practical and useful. 
Thank you, Helen. There you go. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for um, joining me today. Yeah, I hope that this episode has given people some practical information and advice about evidence-based medicine. I know that uh, it definitely has given me some practical advice and I'm going to be more mindful about evidence in the future, Um, particularly conflicts of interest. I think that's been one of my actually main takeaways from being at the BMJ in general. Um, I didn't really have any concept of conflicts of interest um, before and now seeing sort of the education team and how strict they are about their sort of financial conflicts, I found that really interesting and some of the conversations they have about how kind of linked things have to be to this topic that they're wanting to write about and those financial interests. Um, Yeah, I think that's really interesting and not something I'd really thought about that much before so i'm going to be more mindful of that in the future i think that's another podcast in itself anna to what extent do you want to be involved in industry and what are the future implications on your career not to say that it is either good or bad um but what are the doors that open and the doors that shut because there are always benefits i'm just writing this down on my list of ideas Awesome. So that's all from us on Sharp Scratch today. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe to Sharp Scratch wherever you get your podcasts. And in two weeks time, you'll get our next episode straight to your phone. While you wait for the next episode, why not check us out on social media? We're BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag Sharp Scratch. It's also really helpful for us if you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your pods, as it helps other med students find the show. Until then, it's goodbye from all of us. Bye! Bye. Bye.